evening, everyone. Begin with a word of prayer here. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gospels that you have given to us. And we thank you that you have given us four gospels so that we might have a stereoscopic view of Jesus Christ and his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. We thank you so much for this complete picture that you have given to us so that we might have an understanding of just exactly what you have done on our behalf. We thank you for this. We ask that as you, as we look at the Gospel of John this evening, that you will aid our understanding and help us to fully appreciate what you've done for us in the life of Jesus Christ, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what that means for us and the thorough explanation that the Apostle John has given to us in this book. We thank you for this. We ask for your help. That's when you praise you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So tonight we're looking at the Gospel of John, part two. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One of the things that I wanted to begin with was talking about how the Gospel of John is not arranged in strictly chronological order. I mentioned last time that he gives us an outline and framework in which to place the events of the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ. But within those segments, it's not all arranged in, in exactly chronological order. And so I'm going to talk about aporias. Sometimes an event is mentioned or a statement is made that is not explained until a later chapter, even though it is apparent that the event took place before it was mentioned. These literary scenes or discontinuities are called aporias. That's the name that scholars have given them. So I'll give you some examples of what I mean by aporias. Uh, the first one I'm gonna show you is in chapter 11, verse two. Here, Mary of Bethany is introduced as the woman who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. So it, it's talking about her as if you already know about her, but yet that this event isn't explained, this anointing does not take place until the next chapter, chapter 12. So in chapter 11, Mary is spoken of as the woman who did this, but then what she did isn't, isn't explained until chapter 12. So that's an example of Naporia. Here's another one. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 31, it appears that Jesus has completed his upper room discourse. He implies that his arrest is at hand by saying, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Then he says, rise, let us go hence. The striking thing is that Jesus does have much to say, about 86 verses or so, before the coming of Judas. Judas is the, the representative, the one who's coming on behalf of Satan. But see, Jesus says, rise, let us go hence. And then, then we have chapters 14, 15, excuse me, we have chapters 15, 16, 17, where Jesus is speaking. So what, what's going on here? Because he, he said he didn't have, I no longer, I will no longer talk much to you. So what is happening? Should 1431 be followed by 181? 
if you read the story in this sequence, you will be surprised by the ease with which the story flows. So he says, I, don't, I will no longer speak much with you. And then in 18.1, that's when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So were all of those things in, in chapters 15, 16, 17, was that what was spoken before 1431? That seems to be the case. Uh, here, here's another uh, Aporia example. 16.5, none of you ask me, where are you going? But Peter had asked this very question in 1336, and Thomas had asked it in 14.5. So the disciples had asked Jesus, where are you going prior to this, according to the, the way that the, the Gospel of John is arranged. But apparently those, those things are not in chronological order. So at the time that Jesus said this, where are you? None of you asked me, where are you going? They hadn't asked that yet. But in the order in which we have the, the apostle, the, the gospel of John today, they did ask it. So that's why I say the things that are related to us in the gospel of John aren't necessarily given to us in chronological order. It is not known why this happens. It has been suggested that perhaps the gospel is a series of sermons that John had given. It's a collection of, of his sermons. An event mentioned in one sermon was explained in a subsequent sermon. So that could be the reason why it's not in strictly chronological order. It's just in the order that, that he gave these sermons. So that's one explanation that may help you to understand some of these puzzling things about why uh, something is mentioned, but it's not really ex explained until later on. So here's, here's some questions that are raised by various verses of the Gospel of John. Uh, one, one, is Jesus God or just a God? One thirty-three, did John the Baptist know Jesus before his baptism or not? Or 26, why did Jesus confess he was the Messiah here but avoid doing it elsewhere. This, this is the incident with the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, in 5.28 through 29, is Jesus advocating salvation by works? 10.11, did Jesus die for just his friends or for his enemies too? 10.30, was Christ one with the Father? 11.26, how could Jesus say we will never die when the Bible declares we will all eventually die. 1428, did Jesus think of himself as less than God? And 2017, if Jesus had not yet ascended to the Father, how could he have committed his spirit to the Father? So let's, let's take a look at these. Is Jesus God or just a God? Christians believe Jesus is God, and often appeal to this passage in the first chapter of John to prove it. However, Jehovah's Witnesses translate this verse, and the word was a God, OG, because there is no definite article, the, in the Greek of this verse. So they say that because there, the definite article is absent, that it's just a God, not the God. In Greek, when the definite article is used, it often stresses the individual, and when it is not present, it refers to the nature of the one denoted. Thus, the verse could be rendered 
and the word was of the nature of God. The full deity of Christ is supported not only by general usage of the same construction, but by other references in John to Jesus being God. It's 858, 1030, 2028. Those verses leave a little question as to whether or not John understood Jesus to be God. And in the rest of the New Testament, of course, in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, 2.9, Titus 2.13. The, the New Testament is very, very emphatic that Jesus is God. Furthermore, some New Testament texts use the definite article and speak of Christ as the God. So there are other verses in the New Testament that speak of the God, of, of Jesus as being the God. So it does not matter whether John did or did not use the definite article here in this particular verse. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God, not just a God. And I referenced Hebrews 1.8. That Jesus is Yahweh is clear from the fact that the New Testament attributes to Jesus characteristics in the Old Testament that in the Old Testament apply only to God. So there are Old Testament verses that the New Testament applies to Jesus Christ. And if you look at those Old Testament verses, they do very explicitly talk about Yahweh, about God. In the New Testament, those verses are applied to Jesus. An example that I give is uh, in John 19.37 and the corresponding Old Testament verse, Zechariah 12.10. So Jesus is definitely God. John 1.33, did, did John the Baptist know Jesus before his baptism or not? Before his baptism, John said categorically, I did not know him. Yet in Matthew 3.13-14, John recognized Jesus before he baptized him and said, I have need to be baptized by you. So did John know him or did he not know him? John may have known Jesus before his baptism only by reputation, not by recognition. That's one possibility. He'd heard about him and, and knew something of what he had done, but he didn't recognize these things yet. Or he may have known Jesus only by personal acquaintance but not by divine manifestation. After all, Jesus and John were relatives. We, we know that from, from Luke, because his mother, Jesus' mother Mary, and John's mother Elizabeth were related. Even though they were raised in different places, so they were raised in different places, they, they probably didn't have everyday contact with one another, but it's quite likely that they knew each other. However, even though John may have had some previous family contact with Jesus. He had never known Jesus as he was revealed at his baptism. When, when the Spirit descended on him, and the Father spoke from heaven, said, this is my beloved Son. The context indicates that up to his baptism, no one really knew Jesus as he would then be revealed to Israel. So even though someone may have known Jesus, they didn't fully realize what he was going to do, what he would be to Israel. John 4.26. Why did Jesus confess he was the Messiah? Here, was talking to the Samaritan woman, but he avoided doing it elsewhere. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus seemed to go out of his way to avoid claiming he was the Jewish Messiah. He would ask his disciples in private, who do you say that I am? famous confession of Peter in Matthew 16. 
and, and he would sometimes exhort people who discovered it, who did find out that he was a Messiah, to tell no man. Yet here in John, to the woman of Samaria, Jesus forthrightly volunteered, I who speak to you am he. So he told her very plainly that he was the Messiah. But why did he sometimes tell, not wish to tell people that he was the Messiah? Here, Jesus was in Samaria, not Judea. The Jews of Jesus' day had a distorted concept of the Messiah, namely, as one who would deliver them from the political oppression of Rome. In this context, Jesus was careful to make his claims more covert, so as to elicit from his disciples a more spiritual concept of the one who came to redeem his people. So there were many misunderstandings in Jesus' day among the Jews as to what the Messiah would be like. So Jesus did not openly proclaim himself as the Messiah, at least throughout much of his ministry. Indeed, this is the reason Jesus spoke so often in parables, so that those who were truly seeking would understand, but those who had a false concept would be confused. This is the reason when Jesus performed miracles, he would sometimes exhort the person to tell no one, since he did not want to be thronged by the curious. He, he didn't want to, to be thronged by crowds who just came to see the show, so to speak. He wanted to, to entertain only serious lookers, people who wanted to really understand, know and understand. Jesus rebuked those who, having seen him multiply the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, they, they didn't want to make him king when they saw this miracle, declaring that they followed him because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So Jesus wanted true followers, not just hangers on who just wanted to see him put on a good show. However, in Samaria, where this false Jewish concept of a political deliverer from Rome, who could feed the masses, did not prevail, Jesus did not hesitate to claim that he indeed was the true Messiah. Jesus said to only one Samaritan woman in private, not to the masses of Jews in Judea. Nonetheless, Jesus did claim to be the Messiah in public in Judea and to the Jews. Usually, however, his claim was more covert, trying to get them to discover for themselves who he was. When it became necessary to declare himself before the high priest, after his arrest, when he was on trial before the high priest, Jesus didn't hesitate to give an explicit answer to the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? By declaring, I am, I am the Christ. And we read about that in Mark and Matthew, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. John 5, 28 through 29. Is Jesus advocating salvation by works? Jesus says in John's gospel that the time is coming when people in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This seems to be a clear contradiction to salvation by grace, because he's talking about those who have done good works, that they're going to have life, and those who have done evil works, that they're going to be condemned. 
So it seems to me that he's talking about salvation by works here. Jesus does not believe in salvation by works. In the beginning of his gospel, John writes, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So he's talking about believing. He's not talking about doing any works. Jesus says in John 3.16, in that, that famous verse, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Once again, it's talking about believing, not doing works. In John 5.24, Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So it's not talking about obtaining eternal life through works. It's talking about obtaining eternal life by believing in what God has done through Jesus Christ. From these passages, it is clear that Jesus does not believe in salvation through works. Jesus' reference to good works in John 5, 28 through 29, is to works that are done after saving faith. To be saved, one needs the grace of God. But authentic faith expresses itself in good works. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. But we are created unto good works. So we do good works as a result of what God has done for us. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says something very similar to what Jesus says in John 5, 28 through 29. In Romans, Paul says that God will render to each person according to his deeds, according to his work, what he has done. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. Eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Those, those people are going to be condemned. people who do not obey the truth. So are those who persevere doing this on their own? But Paul also wrote, for by grace are you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. In the passage in Romans, Paul is talking about the individual who shows this new life that he has received, this gift, in his good works. In Ephesians, Paul is saying that none can save himself by works prior to salvation. So the good works are something that we do in response to salvation, not something that we do in order to earn salvation. So Jesus does not contradict himself with the rest of scripture concerning the matter of salvation. Those who receive the resurrection of life have shown their saving faith by their works. John 10, 11. Did Jesus die for just his friends or for his enemies too? John quotes Jesus as saying that he lays down his life for the sheep. There's also a, a verse in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 13, where we also see that. But Paul says Christ died for the ungodly while they were still enemies in Romans 5. How can both be true? Jesus died for both his friends, his, his disciples, his followers, and his enemies. In fact, 
His friends were enemies when he died for them. None of us started out as friends of Jesus, did we? There is no contradiction here, since the text does not say that Christ died only for his friends. He did die for those who would become his friends, but he also died for those who would remain his enemies. You can see that in, in the epistle of Peter. Peter refers to the apostates who were denying the Lord who bought them. So Jesus died even for those apostates who would not accept it. Salvation was available to them, they just rejected it. John 10.30. This is that passage about the sheep and the sheepfold and the good shepherd. Was Christ one with the Father? Jesus said here, I and my Father are one. But on other occasions, he distinguished himself from the Father, saying, I came forth from the Father and I leave the world and go to the Father. Further, he prayed to the Father as one person to another, and even said, my Father is greater than I. And I'll, I'll talk more about that when I get to, down to verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus was one with the Father in nature, but distinct from him in person. The triune Godhead, as one essence, but three distinct persons. So Jesus was the same in substance as the Father, and yet was a different individual from the Father. Once again, I, as I said, I'll talk more about that when I get to 1428. 1126. How could Jesus say, we will never die, when the Bible declares we will all eventually die? God said to Abraham, in the day that you eat of it, excuse me, to Adam, God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's what he said, clear back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. Clear back then, God assured them that they would die. Paul reaffirmed this, declaring that through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. But Jesus seems to contradict this when he said, Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus was not denying that believers would die. In fact, he affirmed it in the previous verse, saying, Though he may die, he shall live. In other words, Jesus claimed that because he was the resurrection and the life, he would resurrect to eternal life those who believe in him. Those who believe in Jesus will have spiritual life, even though they will experience physical death. And we have many loved ones who have experienced physical death. And that has been happening all down through the centuries since the church began. For those who are born only once will die twice. Once physically and once again at the second death, which we read in Revelation 20. Or the final separation from God is another way to say that. But those who are born twice, as Jesus urged that we should be, 
will die only once, physically, and will live with God forever. Did Jesus think of himself as less than God? I talked a little bit about this earlier, but now we're to chapter 14, verse 28. So Jesus, did Jesus think of himself as less than God? Christianity confesses Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Yet Jesus said, my father is greater than I. How can the father be greater if Jesus is equal to God? The father is greater than the son by office, but not by nature, since both are God. There's no question about that. John 1, 1, John 8, 58, John 10, 30. Just as an earthly father is equally human with, but holds a higher office than his son, even so the father and the son in the Trinity are equal in essence, but different in function. In like manner, we speak of the president of our country as being a greater man, not by virtue of his character, but by virtue of his position. Therefore, no one can say that Jesus considered himself anything less than God by nature. So just because Jesus made that statement that my father is greater than I, that does not mean that he considered himself a little g God, not equal to father in essence and character. The following summary helps to crystallize the differences. So this is a handy little chart that I came across. Jesus is equal to the Father in essence, in nature, in character. The Father is greater than Jesus in function, in office, in position. So he holds a different office, a different position. He has a different function than the Son. But the two are entirely equal in essence, in nature, and character. I think that's a good summary of the equality of father and son, and yet how Jesus could say, my father is greater than I. John 20, verse 17. If Jesus had not yet ascended to the Father, how could he have committed his spirit to the Father? Jesus said here, and chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 17. I have not yet ascended to my father. This is um, in his appearance to the, to the women at the tomb, appearance to Mary Magdalene. And he told her, I have not yet ascended to my father. But earlier on the cross, when he was hanging on the cross, he said, just as he was about to die, he said, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. We'll read about that in Luke 23. If he was already with the Father, then why did he say that he had not yet ascended to him? The day he died, Jesus' spirit went to be with the Father. That's Luke 23, 43, and 46 records. Remember, he promised the, the thief on the cross that I say unto you that this day you will be in paradise with me. So his spirit had been with the Father, but his body had not yet ascended into heaven when he spoke to Mary. 
the bodily ascension took place some 40 days later. So I think that clears up this mystery of how he's with the father after, right immediately after his crucifixion, and yet he's not, he has not yet ascended to his father bodily. Next, I want to talk about some textual variants that we find in the Gospel of John. Textual variants are always interesting to me and how the process by which it becomes apparent which was which of these textual variants was probably the original reading in a particular passage. Uh, one of these comes very early in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 18. We read in the King James Version, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So, some manuscripts do say the only begotten Son. But there are other manuscripts which have a different reading which is reflected in the NASB, New American Standard Bible. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained it. So we have some translations that, that go with the reading in, in some of the manuscripts, which say the only begotten Son. We see that in the, in the King James Version, the New King James Version the RSV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. They all go with the reading, the only begotten son. The versions, the translations which go with the manuscripts which say the only begotten God are the ESV, the NESB, the NIV, and the Net Bible. I have to, to chuckle when I see the NIV. Uh, recently I, I learned about a a new believer in Turkey, and of course Turkey is a Muslim country, so he did not have uh, extensive knowledge about Bible translations. He was introduced to the gospel by a couple that was visiting in Turkey, and they had a Bible with them. And, and he asked them, about, what's, what's that new Bible? Uh, I've never seen a new Bible before. <laughs> so the NIV, he thought that new, new was a word. So the Greek, in this case, uh, in, the, in the manuscripts which say, talk about the, the only begotten uh, God, as it is sometimes translated, the Greek is actually monogenes to us. And the only begotten God is, is kind of an awkward way to translate that. Uh, it, it could be rendered as an only one God. So the second word to us, God, is, uh, is best understood as appositionally. The second word is understood appositionally, meaning that the second word re refers to the same person as the first word, the monogenes. So uh, think of it this way, the unique one himself, God. So that is the the reading which 
most Testament scholars consider to be the original reading that Monaghan is to us. One of the one of the principles that translators consider is that if you have variant readings in a verse, the the most difficult reading is probably the earliest reading, the one that was the original, because it's more likely that a copyist would change a reading to be what he thinks more understandable, you know, change a, a more difficult reading to an easier reading rather than the, than the reverse. In other words, if, if he came across a reading that was easy to understand, why would he change it to a reading which is more difficult to understand? So that's one of the one of the principles that, that translators use. Uh, John 3.13, the textual variance there. Uh, in the King James Version of, of John 3.13, it says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Uh, that um, phrase which I put in red, which is in heaven, is not found in some manuscripts. And so the ESV says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It doesn't have that which is in heaven. So we have these two variant readings. No one has ascended into heaven except the one coming down from heaven, the Son of Man, the one being in heaven. That is the reading which we find in the King James, the New King James, and also in the New English Bible. Other translations go with the manuscripts which do not have that phrase. No one has ascended into heaven except the one coming down from heaven, the Son of Man. That's the RSV, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the Net Bible. Now, if you think about it, in John chapter 3, uh, the Son, Jesus, was not in heaven. He was here on the earth in the incarnation. So just from that alone, the, the expression, the one being in heaven, seems a little out of place. Another thing that often happened with copying the manuscripts of the New Testament was that a copyist would place a note in the margin of, it, of the manuscript as he wrote it down. He would place a, a note in the, in the margin, a note which he felt was necessary to help the reader understand that particular passage better. And then a later copyist would come along and he would see that note in the margin and he would think, ah, that note was actually supposed to be in the text, but they forgot it, so they wrote it in the margin. So I'm going to put it back in the text where it belongs, so he thought, whereas it wasn't originally part of the text. It was just a note helping to explain the text. And there is an example of that in, in the book of John. So sometimes the copyist would incorporate marginal notes by a previous copyist into the text. And the example we're going to look at is John chapter five, verse four. This is where uh, uh, Jesus heals an invalid at the pool of Bethesda, which is uh, located north of the Temple Mount. 
and for those of you who would like to join me in our trip to Israel in November of next year, uh, that is one of the places that I would like to take you to, is to the ruins of the Ula Bethesda. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And then in the King James Version, we see this in verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And then in verse 5 it goes on to say, And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. So even though this man had suffered from this infirmity for many years, that was no obstacle to Jesus. Jesus, of course, could heal him. But the, what, we're, what we want to focus on right now is verse 4. Because the earliest manuscripts do not have verse 4 in the text. So at some point, a copyist added that as a marginal note to explain what was happening here. Because otherwise, we see these, these, um, these impotent folk waiting for the moving in the water. Well, what's, what's that all about? Why, why are they waiting for the moving in the water? Well, the copyist had uh, the idea that he would help his readers to understand that by putting this note in the margin. And then a later copyist came along and, and incorporated that marginal note into the text. And that is why the earliest manuscripts don't have that in the text, whereas uh, some later manuscripts do. So the ESV, which, which uh, takes into account those earlier manuscripts, you see um, how it says in verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Then it goes directly to verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So it doesn't have verse 4. It does give you a note, a footnote, explaining that that was added to the later text. So once again, it's a, it's a marginal note where it, which, where it belongs, not, not part of the text. So um, incidentally, this, this idea of um, an angel went down at a certain season into the pool um, and troubled the water. That was the, the, the Jewish understanding. Now, the Bible is not saying that that really did happen, that an angel went down and, and stirred the water. It's just saying that that was the belief. That's what this note is telling us, that that was the belief. It isn't, the Bible doesn't make it the assertion that it actually did happen. But the people were waiting around this pool of Bethesda, and whenever the water was stirred, they believed that an angel was stirring it, so they rushed down there to the first one in and healed. Uh, the pagans also had this belief. See, in the pagan world, there was a, a god of healing called Asclepius. And pagan cities would have a pool too, where they believed that the god went down and stirred up the water and whoever 
and when it, and the water got healed. But of course, the Jews adopted this myth, but they, since they were monotheists, they didn't believe in many gods, so they didn't believe that a god went down. They, they believed that an angel went down. So that was the current belief. The Bible doesn't assert that that was a correct belief. It just, we were just told that that was the belief. So once again, in the ESV, it goes directly from verse 3 to verse 5. It doesn't include verse 4 in the text. Most textual variants only involve a verse or two. But there are some, there are two very long, lengthy uh, textual variants in the New Testament. One of those I looked at when I talked about the Gospel of Mark. There are some manuscripts which have that longer ending of the book of Mark, which apparently was not in the original Gospel of Mark. The other one is in John. So this is John 7.53 through 8.11 in the King James Version. And every man went unto his own house. That's the last verse of chapter 7 in the King James Version. And then in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? So they were hoping, hoping to trap Jesus by this clever trick, they thought. Because if Jesus said yes, she should be stoned, well then he would get in, into trouble with the Roman authorities because the, the Jews did not have the authority under Roman rule to take upon themselves capital punishment. They had to have Roman permission to do that. But if he said, no, don't stone her, then they could get him for speaking against the Torah, against the law that God had given Israel. So they thought they had Jesus in a predicament, but of course, they never had Jesus in a predicament. This they said tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up himself, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No, ma'am, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. 
go and sin no more. So we have that in the, the King James Version. With, beginning with uh, chapter 7, verse 53, on through the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Modern English translations place John 7.53 through 8.11 in brackets and have a footnote informing the reader that this passage is not in the earliest manuscripts. So it's quite likely that this, this pericope, this narrative of the woman taken in adultery was not in the original Gospel of John. It's omitted by a diverse group of ancient manuscripts. That is another of the indications that translators use. Uh, they look for the, the manuscripts which are found in a, a wide variety of areas from many different locations, as opposed to a, a manuscript family which is just uh, in one particular region. So the, a very diverse group of ancient manuscripts do not have this passage in it. And some of the manuscripts that do contain the passage mark it off, either with the asterisks or um, what are called obelai. Um, these are markings. Like the, there's a couple of different variants on, on the, how the mark, what the markings look like. In some cases, they're a, a minus symbol or a dash and in some cases, they look like a, the, the modern division sign, a, a bar with a dot above it and a dot below it. So, the, so many manuscripts that do contain the passage mark it off. One of the things that's most indicative of the fact that it wasn't in the original is the fact that in the manuscripts, the manuscripts that do have it, it's appearing in many different places. So in the arrangement that we're used to saying, it's, it's after John 7.52, because it's John 7.53 through 8.11. But some of the manuscripts have it after John 7.36. And some of the manuscripts have the passage after John 7.44. And some of the passages uh, don't have it until near the end of the book in, in John chapter 21, verse 25. And in some manuscripts, it's not even in the book of John, the Gospel of John. It's in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21, verse 38. So apparently there were copyists who thought, well, surely this, this story should be in the Gospels. But they were looking around for a, a good place to, to put it in. Where, where should they put it? So the fact that they put it in different different copies, put it in different places, is a good indication that it wasn't part of the original Gospel of John, that it was added later, because it was added in, in many different places. Um, John 7.52 and John 8.12 go together. The story interrupts the flow of the text. So. If you, if you read John 52 and then start reading in John 8, 12, it, it, the story flows, it goes together. This addition of, of, this, of the Archipede Adultera, Adultera the, the narrative of the woman taken in adultery, seems to be an added, uh, an added passage. 
Now, I, I do hasten to add, however, that the fact that it was not part of the original Gospel of John doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't true. I mean, it may be that this incident actually did happen in, in the ministry of Christ. It just wasn't part of the original Gospel of John. And that may be why some copyists they heard this story over and over again. And so they felt that it should be included in the Gospels. They just didn't know where to put it. So now let's take a look at some of the unique contributions of the Gospel of John. John adds stereoscopic depth to Jesus and his ministry. John's presentation of who Jesus is lies at the heart of this gospel. Despite the emphasis on Jesus as the one who reveals the Father, salvation does not come merely by revelation. It doesn't come from just knowing things, right? It doesn't just come from knowing the facts. It depends on the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, on his exaltation. That is the means by which we receive salvation. John's distinctive emphasis on eschatology is bound up with the use of the hour theme. You might be familiar with the words, the hour is coming and now is. John's teaching on the Holy Spirit has similarities to the synoptics, but there are some unique strands. John doesn't cite the Old Testament as frequently, as Matthew, for example, but, it, but it, the, book, the Gospel of John does have many allusions to Old Testament events and people. No gospel better preserves the ways Jesus was misunderstood by his followers. And John provides greater depth than the synoptics, but only on restricted topics. There are particular areas where he provides greater depth to understanding. So let's look at these. John adds stereoscopic depth to the picture we might gain of Jesus and his ministry, death, and resurrection from the synoptic accounts alone. So John adds some additional information. By telling the same story from another angle, with many things omitted that they include, and with many emphases that they scarcely treat, the total portrait is vastly richer than what would otherwise have been achieved. So if John had just given us another gospel that follows the same pattern as the synoptics, think of what of all the things that we would not have, all the things that we would lose. John's presentation of who Jesus is lies at the heart of all that is distinctive in this gospel. Fundamental to all else that is said of him, Jesus is peculiarly the Son of God, or simply the Son. Although Son of God can serve as a rough synonym for the Messiah, it is enriched by the unique manner in which Jesus, as God's Son, relates to his Father. He is functionally subordinate to him and does and says only those things the Father gives him to do and say. But he does everything that the Father does, since the Father shows him everything that he himself does. I explained that earlier about how Jesus and the Father are one in the sense that they are of the same essence, nature, character, but the Father is greater in the sense that he has a different office, a different position, a different function. The perfection of Jesus' obedience 
and the unqualified nature of his dependence thereby become the place in which Jesus discloses nothing less than the words and deeds of God. Despite the heavy emphasis on Jesus as the one who reveals his Father, salvation does not come, as in Gnosticism, merely by revelation. In Gnosticism, the teaching was that you, were, you achieved salvation simply by uh, achieving a secret knowledge that was specially revealed to you. Well, there's, there's more to that than in Christianity. It isn't just about knowing facts. John's work is a gospel. All of the movement of the plot is toward the cross and the resurrection. The cross is not merely a, a revelatory moment. So it's not enough just to learn about the cross. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the uh, analogy the story about the, the man in the wheelbarrow. And there was a man who was pushing a wheel, he, he strung a cable across Niagara Falls and then he pushed a wheelbarrow across the, the cable and back. And of course, by this time, there was a, a large crowd that had assembled to, to watch this amazing thing. And he asked the crowd, okay, do you think I can, can cross, push the wheelbarrow across this cable? And of course, they already seen him do it, so they, they all they all felt that he could. And he said, okay, if you believe it, then get in the wheelbarrow. Well, that's kind of like the way it is with Jesus. It isn't just enough to know what Jesus did. You have to place your trust in him. It is the death of the shepherd or his sheep. So the cross is not merely a revelatory moment. It's not just uh, facts, learning about the facts. It is the death of the shepherd for his sheep, chapter 10. It is the sacrifice of one man for his nation, chapter 11. It's the life that is given for the world, chapter 6. It is the victory of the Lamb of God that we learn about when Jesus came to John the Baptist. It's the triumph of the obedient son, who in consequence bequeaths his life, his peace, his joy, and his spirit. To those who receive him and believe him. John's distinctive emphasis on eschatology is bound up with his use of the hour theme. We see this many times in, in the Gospel of John. The New Testament writings display the tension of trying simultaneously to express the wonderful truth that in the ministry, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ, of Jesus, God's promised last days have already arrived. And two, to insist that the fullness of hope is still to come. So throughout the New Testament, there's this tension, and Bob and Eric have just explained this, described this many times, the already but not yet theme that we find in the New Testament. Jesus has come, Jesus is here, but yet his kingdom is not here in its fullness, and it won't be until he returns again. So there's always this, this tension of how do you talk about both at the same time, that Jesus has come, but yet he's coming again. Different authors set out the tension in different ways. In John, the hour is coming and now has come. Jesus has bequeathed his peace, but in this world, we will have trouble. Above all, in the wake of Jesus' exaltation, and his gift of the Spirit. 
and can possess eternal life even now. That is characteristic of John, who tilts his emphasis to the present enjoyment of eschatology's blessings. So John does emphasize that we have this gift of life now. But this is never at the expense of all future hope. The time is coming when those who are in the graves will come out to face the judgment of the one to whom all judgment has been entrusted by the Father. So in his first coming, Jesus did not come to judge the world, and yet his second coming, all judgment has been entrusted to him. If John asserts that Jesus, even now, makes himself present among his followers in the person of his spirit, he also insists that Jesus himself is coming back to gather his own to the dwelling he has prepared for them. That famous passage in John 14. In my father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places, or many offices, places of responsibility, as some translations put it. Although John's teaching on the Holy Spirit has important similarities to the synoptic embassies, there are numerous strands that are unique. Jesus not only bears and bestows the Spirit, but by bequeathing the eschatological Spirit, he discharges his role as the one who introduces what is characteristic under the New Covenant. So Jesus told us that he would be departing and going to the Father, but that he would give us a paraclete, another comforter. In the farewell discourse, found in chapters 14 through 16, the Spirit, the Counselor, is clearly in consequence of Jesus' death and exaltation. The elements of what came to be called the doctrine of the Trinity find their clearest articulation within the New Testament in the Gospel of John. John fleshes out that understanding of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Although John does not cite the Old Testament as frequently as does Matthew, for example, his use of the Old Testament is characterized by an extraordinary number of allusions. So I think I said in part, John part one, that there are about 90 of these allusions to the Old Testament, to Old Testament incidents, to Old Testament characters, even though he doesn't quote it as some of the other gospel writers do. And he does quote it, but not as often. And, and above all, by his insistence that Jesus, in certain respects, replaces revered figures and institutions from the Old Covenant. So John makes plain that, in many cases, Jesus uh, serves as a replacement, a greater replacement, for some of the characters and institutions of the Old Covenant. For example, he's, he's the temple, he's the vine, he's the tabernacle, he's the servant was lifted up who brings healing. He's our Passover. No gospel better preserves the ways in which Jesus was misunderstood by his contemporaries, including his own followers. It wasn't just the people who didn't accept him that didn't understand him. In many cases, his, his own disciples, as well-intentioned as they might be, didn't understand what he was doing until after he had done it. This feature not only provides an entrance into various historical questions, but is itself a reflection on the relation between the Old Covenant and the New. 
for the same gospel that insists that Jesus fulfills and in certain respects replaces many Old Testament teachers, equally insists that most of these points were not grasped by Jesus' disciples until after his exaltation. John, in certain respects, provides greater depth than do the Synoptic Gospels, but only on, on relatively restricted topics. That is a major reason why his vocabulary is relatively small, with certain words and expressions occurring again and again. This repetition becomes an index of some of the things that are important to him. John wanted to get these principles across, so he, he kept using the same words over and over. For example, he uses the verb believe 98 times in his gospel. The love words 57 times. World 78 times, for God so loved the world. Uh, the sin verbs 60 times. He uses the word father 137 times, mostly with reference to God. You know, there are things like, you know, he's talking to the religious leaders who didn't accept him and said, you are your father, the devil. So he's contrasting their father with his father. But most of the times, times that he uses the word father, it applies to the father, God the father. And so that is our study of the book of John. Uh, believe me, there were so many other things that I wanted to add, but for the sake of time, I didn't include them. So now I'll offer a word of prayer, and then we'll have our questions and answers. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful Gospel of John that you've given us, so that we could have an understanding of the meaning of what you accomplished through your Son, through his ministry, through his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and exaltation. We think of how impoverished our lives would be if we did not have that knowledge, that understanding, and we did not have the assurance of the hope of eternal life that you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and of John's faithful transference of that knowledge to us. Thank you for this. And we ask that you would help us to go out in renewed strength on the basis of what you have done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name.